Today's teaching text comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A cry goes out across the market in the center of Ephesus. A man has been seen stealing, and a merchant sounds the alarm with his voice. Stop that man! The spooked thief bolts and chase is given. The man runs in a panic. His legs burn and mind searches for some way to escape. He is able to get outside the grounds of the market, and it occurs to him there is one possibility. Behind, he can see and hear his pursuers. If he is caught, he knows his fate. He will be jailed at best, beaten severely, and then jailed is more likely. So he runs. He knows he is headed in the right direction, and in a few moments he can make out the tops of the columns on the horizon. The men after him are not giving up. He will have to see if he can make it. He wills himself to keep going toward the temple. It is one of the seven wonders of the world, and he can see its towering structure when he is still a long way off. He bears down towards the steps on the side, chest heaving. He will have to risk offending Artemis, but a goddess of stone seems like less a risk than the men just behind him. His memory serves him the thought that she is not just the goddess of fertility, but also of the hunt and of wild animals. He cannot smile at this now, but he will in the retelling. He has nothing left when he reaches the outer stairs, but wills himself onward, ignoring the looks and shouts of those he passes. At the top, he catches himself and looks back. He will make it if he keeps going. He sets off through the statues and into the center garden, his eyes searching, wild, for what he knows is there but has never seen. A tree in the center of the garden comes into view, and it is unmistakable. He runs, absolutely spent towards the tree. Wondering how close he has to be, not willing to chance it, he sprints all the way in and collapses, hugging the tree. The men who have chased him from the market are there in a moment, exhausted, hunched over, relieved to know the chase is over. They see the man, pathetic and caught, collapsed against the tree. They go to grab him and drag him back. Stop, shouts another man in a robe. He has made it to the tree. He has asylum now and cannot be touched. The pursuers glare and try to register his words. 
Anyone under the shade of this tree cannot be captured or taken away. He has thrown himself on the mercy of Artemis. Ephesus uh, no longer stands in modern Turkey. Uh, Actually, silt ruined the port. Uh, But at its height, it was quite a city. Uh, We can piece together accounts of life there and and begin to get a sense of what it might have been been like. And we can imagine, as we just have, a a scene of someone fleeing uh, to the temple of Artemis or, or, or Diana, where there was this tree of asylum. Uh, that was uh, said to be found in the center of the garden on the temple grounds where uh, if a criminal could get within uh, you know, reach of the tree, they, they would be safe uh, from their pursuers. Ephesus was a city of great uh, power. It, it functioned uh, as the capital of the Roman province. Actually, several emperors made their, made their homes there. Uh, it was a destination city. It was a center of commerce. Uh, it sat along several major land and sea trade routes. Um, uh, a, a historian called Ephesus the greatest emporium of Asia Minor. Basically, anything you wanted, you could find it in Ephesus. Uh, it was a city of great cultural influences. As, as we mentioned, it had one of the seven wonders of the world. It was also a governmental seat, uh, this place of power. It had tremendous wealth and important citizens. Um, I don't know if Ephesus was a city that never never sleeps, but uh, we, we get that sense that it was this vibrant, bless, bustling, teeming city. And a church grew up in this city early on in the movement of Jesus, a church that knew the power of God uh, and the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus. And we actually know quite a bit about the story of the church at Ephesus. Uh, The rest of the New Testament paints this picture in different places about what actually happened there. Some of the most notable leaders in the New Testament were leaders in the church at Ephesus. Paul, the apostle, planted the church. He spent over two years there talking through the gospel um, in a a regular, formative way, discipling those um, who who, who trusted Jesus. And um, it, it was said that from Ephesus, the gospel spread to all of Asia. So such a deep uh, formative work uh, happened you know, through the ministry of Paul and the person of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that the gospel spread from Ephesus to all of Asia. There's, there's a, a recounting in Acts of a riot that took place in Ephesus. There was such a, a permeating work um, uh, in the hearts of so many in Ephesus that the craftsmen who made these small idols of Artemis were losing so much business that they stirred the city up to to, to drive these Jesus people out because people were turning away from these counterfeit gods to the true and living God. Eventually, Paul left Ephesus, but he left his his best friend, a man he had mentored, a man who he was a father in the faith to Timothy to stay and pastor in Ephesus. And then eventually, even John, uh, the disciple who's writing this current letter, Revelation, uh, from his place of banishment on the island of Patmos, also eventually came to pastor in the church at Ephesus. So great city, great church, some remarkable leaders. Perhaps uh, these are some of the reasons, perhaps this influence is is why it's the first church addressed in this list of churches early in the book of Revelation. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
a church in a great city with a, with a remarkable history and story with some incredible leaders still needs the voice of the Spirit, still needs the voice of Christ to speak to it, to, to lead it forward, to, to correct it, to affirm it, to guide and direct it. We never get past that moment. We're going to spend the season of Lent uh, listening to what the Spirit says to these churches, specifically these seven churches in Revelation. We're, we're, we're going to hear what the Spirit was saying to these churches in Asia Minor in, in their moment, right near the end of the first century. But hopefully as we do that, we're also going to discern from there what the Spirit might be saying to us, the church in Brooklyn, in, in, in 2021. As a matter of fact, some of our pastoral team, some of our deacons, our justice deacons in particular, have been praying, discerning, asking that God would speak through the Holy Spirit to our church in a specific way in this moment. So each week as we read these sections of these letters, to, to um, this, this was a circulated letter that went to these churches, and we, as we read each section, we're also going to be writing a letter to our church. And maybe that feels presumptuous, and, and we're obviously not going to be adding to Scripture, but we're seeking at the... At that the Spirit obviously still wants to lead us, that, that Jesus' heart is, is for us to be, to be faithful and true and to walk in our, in our true loves and affections and to be a blessing to our city, a blessing to our neighbors. So we believe He would love to, to speak to us, to form our hearts, to live a life of mission, a life of love, a life of generosity and care. So we're going to be adding to this letter to our church, uh, section by section, each week as we go. And so our, our prayer our hope, our expectation, I invite you into this prayer as well, is that we would be able to discern what God is saying to us in this moment. What is he, He's saying to us in our time? We're going to be looking at this, these, these recordings of Jesus speaking powerfully to his church. And we're going to be praying that God would speak powerfully to us in our time. There's a model that we see emerging in, in these letters to the churches in Revelation. For example, uh, to, to Ephesus, we, we see Christ speak, like I said, words of affirmation. He celebrates what is to be celebrated in, the, in this body. Um, but he also speaks words of correction. Here's where you've gone astray. Here's where you're, where you're missing it. Here's, here's something you've forgotten. Here's something you're neglecting. And then he, he, he weaves through these letters, reminders of who he is, reminders of his character to lift their eyes off their circumstances and get them back into a place of remembering the majesty, the beauty, the power, the love of, uh, of Jesus. And then he gives them these staggering promises to hold on to. If to, to the victorious, this will be true. And there's a series of unbelievable promises given to these churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, let them hear. In fact, I just want to pray right now that God would give us ears to hear uh, during this series in Lent. Come, Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. We have no desire to do this on our own. We, we know, Jesus, that you love us. You love us more than we can even fathom or describe or, or, or uh, be, begin to comprehend. And yet your love is real. It's something we can actually experience. And we, we believe that you want to lead us into fullness, that you want to lead us to be uh, the, the, the fullest expression of the, of, the, of the body of Christ, of an outpost of the kingdom of God that we could be in our time. Would you, would you lead us forward? Would you speak by your spirit? Would you show us the ways we need to change? We need to repent. We need to go a new direction. May we be willing to just have that cleansing work of the Spirit done in our lives so that we can bear as much fruit as possible, that we can 
express your character, your love, your mercy, your forgiveness, your justice, your truth in, in our city. May your kingdom come in Brooklyn as it is in heaven. Lead us in this series. Lead us over this Lenten journey as a community, as a church family to become more and more like Christ, more and more who you have called us to be. May we not settle. May we not become stagnant. May we continue to grow in Jesus' name. So I want to say uh, just a little bit about the imagery that we see in these messages to the churches in Revelation. Uh, In fact, this is one of the reasons Revelation can be, you know, kind of intimidating book uh, to read. You open it up and there's, it's just sort of like, um, it's not imagery that we're, that we're used to and it's, it's, it's coming, you know, tumbling one over another. Um, it can be a struggle to interpret what these images mean. Uh, and so we, we, sometimes we need help. Richard Baucom has, has a wonderful book about the theology of Revelation. Um, it's relatively short if you want to get sort of an overview. Um, but, but he says, we have noted, the unusual profusion of visual imagery in Revelation and its capacity to create a symbolic world which its readers can enter and thereby their, uh, have their perception of the world in which they live transformed. So they enter a world and thereby the, their perception of the world they live in is transformed. So Balkum is saying that these symbols are not merely meant to be observed, but they're creating a world that we can enter with our imagination, with the help of the Holy Spirit. We can actually have our vision shaped and, and, and we can go back into our lives with, with a different lens, with a different way to see our neighbor, see the problems of our city, see opportunities before us, right? He, he goes on, Balkum goes on and says, Revelation's readers and the great cities of the province of Asia were constantly confronted with powerful images of the Roman vision of the world. Civic and religious architecture, iconography, statues, rituals, and festivals, even the visual wonder of cleverly engineered miracles in the temple, all provided powerful vision and visual impressions of Roman imperial power and of the splendor of pagan religion. In this context, Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic counter images, which impress on its readers a different vision of the world. I love that. It's so powerful. Revelation is pre- pre- presenting a, a prophetic counter image, which is meant to, to help reform the imagination of God's people, of, of the Jesus people into a, a new way to think and, and, and live and imagine their place in the world. That's what we need. I, I believe prophetic counter images, recognizing how our imagination can be captured and co-opted by our world. What's our vision of success? What's our vision of freedom? What's our vision of abundance? life? What does love actually look like? What does it actually mean? We need prophetic counter images to, to, to come against at times the, 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 the shallow words that we are marketed to so often in, in our society, right? The, a, a company wants us to buy something. It doesn't necessarily want, promise to give us abundant life uh, in, in, its, in its substance. And yet G, Jesus does. And we often need these prophetic counter images, So we hear at the beginning, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
So from, from earlier in the letter, we know the one being spoken of here is, in fact, Jesus. Um, in fact, you could think about Revelation almost like it's a, a fifth gospel. And in the first four gospels, we have this very humble picture of Jesus where he doesn't have a place to lay his head. He, he has to be supported by, by others. You know, we see his mother literally holding up his, his infant head and raising him. We see him, you know, nailed in weakness to the cross, cry, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we also need the picture of the fifth gospel of Revelation that gives us another picture of Jesus where he, he comes to set the world right. He comes to, to say, listen, your lives have consequences. Hey, I'm going to make good on all the promises I've made from the beginning. So just let this description of Jesus wash over you as we begin this Lenten journey. This is, this is the person who's speaking. Um, we, we, we get a picture of him in Revelation 1 before we get these letters in Revelation 2. This is the one who's speaking. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we have an explanation of the imagery that we see, but we also have this incredibly powerful picture of Jesus that needs to round out the picture we have in the gospels, right? We see, we see uh, sinners running to Jesus in the gospels and we, and we should, but we also see a man, a, a, a pastor, right? Caught up in a, in a holy vision, banished for, you know, <clears throat> His public claim to, you know, adoration and love for Jesus and, and he falls at his face <clears throat> as though dead in the whole, in the, in the revelation of the holiness of this Jesus. We need both, we need both pictures. This Jesus has power and authority, beauty and majesty. His, his glory borders on the indescribable. He's called the first and the last, the living one, holding the keys to death and Hades. <clears throat> And then it's so helpful. We have these images that we find in our passage explained. Jesus says, I, I hold the angels or, or the messengers or the leaders of the church in my hand. That's what he's saying here in this, in this image. He says, I walk among the seven golden lampstands. I know the context and influence of the churches. I know their challenges. I walk amongst them. I see the big picture of my kingdom in the world. If we get anything from these letters, one of the first things that comes, uh, to us with force and power and love is that Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows this church in Revelation. He knows our church today. He walks amongst us beyond our reputations, uh, beyond what we would like to project, 
uh, beyond certainly our social media presence, beyond our best moments, our most inspiring uh, stories, the things we tell to donors, uh, but also beyond our guilt and shame, our worst failures, the places we know are, are, are tender with, 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 with wounds. Jesus knows. He truly knows us inside and out down to our actions, but also our motivations, our reputation, but also our most secret desires. That means Jesus is able to address his church um, in a specific and nuanced way. And this is such a powerful thing. Over and over again, even in the Gospels, people remark Jesus speaks with authority. It's like he's talking to his kids. It's like he's talking to, uh, he's talking as someone who sees the whole picture and knows the, the specific details. He, he speaks with this, this authority that's like blowing people's minds. I love that he's able to speak to our church, speak to the church in a specific and nuanced way, lift certain things up, remove certain things, uh, speak blessing, but also speak, speak healing. Uh, I think we need, we need to, to celebrate the, the, the good, but also to call out what needs to be changed. And this is particularly important for us because we live in a, in a time uh, of, of wholesale critique. And this is a true across the spectrum of our society, right? Whether it's cancel culture or, uh, you know, conspiracy theories or just run, run of the mill online venom. We have become accustomed to writing people off entirely, writing people, writing entire groups, writing them off altogether, making no space uh, that they would have a chance to change. And we often feel quite self-righteous when, when, when we do this. We condemn them. We make, we make no space that they could ever be different. But Christ does not work that way. He, he operates differently. In fact, Jesus says, I know your deeds. He calls out what's good in them. He, he, he gives them a commendation, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not. You have found them false. You have persevered and in, have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Think of these things. They're powerful uh, affirmations of this church. You, you have worked hard. You have persevered. You have, you have made a commitment to the true gospel. Basically, there were people who traveled around the, the, these churches and they would come in and say, I'm coming you know, under the name of the apostles of Jesus. And they would try to sort of draft off the influence of the early church. And, and uh, the church at Ephesus apparently had been able to, to sort out and discern several of those people who were just out for their own gain or, or were offering false teaching. And, and Christ commends them for their discernment, for their commitment to the true gospel. They had endured hardship for Jesus' name. And Christ sees all of this and he celebrates. It's a powerful thing. I was thinking about some of what Christ would say to us. I know some of you have stayed when it would have been easier to leave. I, 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 I know you love your city. I know many of you have shown great faith. I have seen your generosity. I have seen your hospitality. I've seen the way you've taken care of those who are hurting. I know you have endured shakeups, changes of the structure. You have endured storms. I know you have walked through incredible grief. I know you've just been through a, a nearly year-long pandemic. I know, I know. We hear the ministry of Jesus to us this morning. I know you. He's able to see what is truly worth celebrating in Ephesus, and he's, he's able to, to see what is truly worth celebrating in us, in, in TGC. 
But then he goes on to share what needs to change. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So as much as Christ had to say, affirming the church at Ephesus, this is a crucial prophetic critique. And we say prophetic because um, it, it may have been to an outside observer not completely obvious. Like A lot of their actions seem to have been good and in the right place. And yet the prophetic uh, critique is the critique that is able to get at the true heart of what is going on. And that's the critique that Jesus offers. And he says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Ephesus is the most famous of, of, of these churches in this this list of, of, of letters. So if you've heard of any of them, you've probably heard of this church that lost its first love. And whatever that meant, it was putting everything else at risk. It, 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 it was, um, if this doesn't change, if they don't recover their first love and, and come back and return to it, their entire place, witness, light, influence as a church is going to be lost. That's what it means for Christ to remove their lampstand. They would no longer have a place where they are the light of the world. And this resonates with several other places in the New Testament that says that we can have all kinds of impressive outward actions, but if we are missing love, we actually have nothing. Many of you will remember the, the Apostle Paul's famous description in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, let these descriptions wa wash over your mind. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Right? Wildly charismatic churches, wildly justice-oriented churches, wildly you know, deep, powerful, speaking, teaching churches, and yet if we don't have love, we have nothing. There is a way to do what might be seen as the right actions, but to do so primarily for ourselves. For how our reputation will be enhanced. For how we can put others, even put God in our debt, where then God has to do something for us because what we have done for how uh, our actions make us feel essential and put us in the center uh, for, for how they give us control, for how it gives us a perceived moral high ground, right? This is such a, a factor we see in our society, right? You, you do something that gives you a perceived moral high ground and then you can look down on everyone else and cancel them or write them off or, 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 or whatever, giving no space or chance that they might change. But love is the essential reality of God. It is true in God's, the, the framework and fabric of God's very character, and our words even fail at this, but something is true about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This triune God has love in His very makeup, very nature, very character. And so love has to be the essential reality of his people. If we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we are walking in the way of Jesus, then it has to be we are walking in the way of love. The same author who wrote Revelation, John, also had once written to the church, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. 
Sometimes when I hear this about the church at Ephesus losing their first love, I can, I can put it in this space where I imagine they simply kind of like let the feeling drift away. You know, the feeling used to be there and then they lost the feeling. They used to love, they used to get, you know, goosebumps and worship songs and now they're not getting the goosebumps anymore. So they've just got to figure out a way to recapture that. But, but it says that this was something they had forsaken. It's important because um, they had cultivated this early on because they had a love of God and a love of their neighbor that had shaped their church, but they had forsaken the cultivation of that love. It wasn't just like a feeling drifted away and they needed to do something to stir that feeling up. That wasn't only it because we know Christ doesn't simply say to them, feel the way you used to feel. He says, repent and do the things you used to do cultivate this love, cultivate your affections, pay attention to what has your imagination, pay attention to what has your vision of the good life, pay attention to what success looks like for you. Is it constantly this orbiting selfishness? Is it constantly curating the desires of your own life, trying to meet the needs of of your, your life out of your own resources? He doesn't say, just keep clicking through the worship songs until you find the one that has the bridge that gives you goosebumps. He says, return to your first love. Do the things. Cultivate your affections in such a way that you're deeply loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're loving your neighbor as yourself. They had lost their affection, surely. And the tender kindness that turned that affection into actions. But they had also, on the other side, forsaken the actions that stirred their affections. So it's it's not just one or the other. Sometimes we act ourselves into loving feelings, and sometimes we are motivated by loving feelings into loving action. And it's never it's it's rarely just one or the other. But if you're if you're wondering, you can begin to cultivate these things. When I think about first love in my life, related related to God, and then eventually related to to, to others in the way that I think is being talked about here, I, I think of, of several moments. There's a space in my college campus, uh, the Annan Prayer Chapel, this little room in the middle of campus. And I remember just going there over and over again. It was a really rough time in my life. I was dealing with some tremendous anxiety. And I used to just get in this chapel. Basically, no one ever went in there. I still remember the carpet. It had a strange smell. Um, and there were chairs that lined this sort of like wood, wood paneled uh, wall. And I would just lay on the carpet. Or I would stand up and pace around the room. I would talk. I would pray. I would shake. I would open my eyes. And I just like developed this conversational, uh, intimate love relationship with God in, in, in that room. And when I think about cultivating my first love, I, I, that, that's some of the actions that I need to return to. There are also times of service. When I looked up and I had, I realized for a little while I had completely forgotten myself. I wasn't trying to curate my own experience. I was giving myself away for someone else and I had the bliss of self-forgetfulness. That's, that's part of cultivating my first love. I, I remember the joy of telling someone about God's love. I had the experience of my, my, my first job. I sort of stumbled into at this church because I was talking with all these middle and high school students about the love of, of Christ. And I remember the joy of telling them what I was experiencing. And, 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 and some of you know this. You, you have things that are true of the, your, your first love, right? Maybe it's secret generosity, giving to someone that no one else knows that, that you're, you're giving to them. And you, you know, you're participating in God's love being shown to that person. For me, I, I, now I like to, I like to, uh, to, to run and to worship at the same time. There's something about getting my body moving. And, and often, like, I'll try not to be too embarrassing about it, but I'm running. I've got my hands open. Like, you know, you, you see that runner and that the, the drum beat hits and they're just like, ah, uh, and I can get 
into that moment where I'm just like, oh, the God's presence and the beauty of creation. And I, I, I honestly, I hope you won't ever see me do this. Sometimes I high five trees if the branches are low enough. I'm just like, I'm out there. I'm in it. I'm worshiping. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm just saying it, it happens, folks. So, um, I, I journal out my heart to God. Right, this is 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 is, is cultivating the, those secret places of of affection, but it also has to have an expression in our outward life as well. Right, to link up with others for the sake of 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 my neighbors and of our neighbors. I was just on this inspiring call uh, with the folks from Pray March Act yesterday, and we were talking about um, working as as a coalition of churches in in our city to introduce um, you know s- specific practical help to our to our city to our neighbors to to the most vulnerable among us, even helping to, to get behind some legislation that's going to stand up uh, for the rights of, of, of the young people in our city in a powerful way. We're going to be talking more about that as we go throughout Lent. But th- that, that's to me, that's part of cultivating our first love, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to know it's not something that we do alone. They had lost their first love, but Christ shows them the way back. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember and repent. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Turn around. Do the things you did at first. That's what it means to repent. Sometimes uh, I talk about this in Alpha on the second course when I'm struggling with a mystery of that God is, you know, offering us in the scriptures. I will try to pull it into the practical, you know, realities of my own life for a little bit, and then bounce it back up and try to see if that 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 helps me get any clarity. And sometimes, quite honestly, and it's been, you know, there's been many moments like this in the pandemic in my marriage. Allison and I will feel like distant project managers. There's so much going on. This this kid needs to get to this Zoom call. We have to drive across the city to this practice. Somebody needs to scra- you know, shovel out the car. So you know we need it. We need to get a grocery run, or we need you know like all these things. We're we're project managing our lives. And I think back to this time when we were dating. Actually, we were coming up, and we were coming on our one year anniversary of dating. And I actually went a little too far with my little uh, dating anniversary gift. This would probably be overkill. Um, But I took 365 Hershey's Kisses and I took the paper out of them and I typed out 365 reasons why I loved Allison. I actually had Elisa, who was her best friend, uh, help me cut the papers out and I restuffed them into, uh, the, the Hershey's Kisses and I, and I gave them to her as a breadbasket. I, I wish I could travel back in time and shake myself and be like, what are you doing? Do you realize like the bar you're setting for gifts and a one year dating anniversary? What are you going to do for 10 years of marriage? Like just, Settle down, young fella. Just like hang on a minute. But but I'm I'm glad, right? There's just sort of like reckless abandon. Apparently, a lot of time that I had at, at this point in my life, and now I'm like, what are we just project managers in our own life now? What about the what about the love like it used to be? And what what do we do, right? We have to go back to some of those things, and and maybe it's not exactly the Hershey's Kisses story or whatever your equivalent is, but I I have to get uh, reckless in my in my love again. We have to we have to be tender with each other. We have to offer each other forgiveness. We have to begin to speak out the things we love and care about one another, and we we have to set aside time to say we're not going to project manage our life right now. We're just going to be together, and some of those exact same things work in our relationship with 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 God, right? We're not just in this in this in this cycle of. Like, 
sin and failure and forgiveness and God's basically always disappointed with us and wishes we were project managing our lives a little bit better than we are. No, there's times for just affection and love and worship and devotion and pouring out our hearts, singing, journaling, being with God. Why? Just so we can feel tingles? No, so we can feel that embrace and then offer that embrace to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is to cultivate our first love. What would remembering and repenting look like for you? What would it look like for us? This is a we moment. How can you obey? How can we obey what God is calling us to? The church must return to our first love, deep affection for Jesus, and the outflow of that affection and love to our neighbors. Do you, do you remember a time in your life when you carried faith with childlike wonder As I mentioned, we, we've been praying and asking God to speak uh, similarly specific words to our church, and several leaders have, have begun to draft uh, you know, sections of a letter attempting to listen for what the Spirit is saying to our church in Brooklyn in this moment. And I just want to read you a little section for this first week. This is drafted by several of our, of, of our leaders. I, I think it's beautiful. To the church at Brooklyn, I understand the unique challenge of your current context. You live in a place that puts such a high value on intellectualism. And in seeking to present a credible witness to your neighbors, you have been thoughtful about your faith, ready to answer every argument for believing in and worshiping an invisible, mysterious, all-powerful God. You have studied and shown yourself approved. But you have been accustomed to faith void of all extremes. One supported by good theology and a set of well-curated, palatable ideas about God. But this faith lacks evidence of exuberant joy at the good news of the gospel and of the passionate desperation to be in union with the Creator. Remember the undignified, childlike joy with which you first received the good news, that the king of the universe traversed space and time to rescue you, to bring you into union with him. Risk everything to seek the fullest expression of faith in a boundless, eternal God who far exceeds the limitations of our finite minds. Then you will experience God in a way that is beyond what you would ask or imagine. Can we do the work of remembering and repenting? Can we do the things we once did? Love is the place we are going and the way we will get there, led by the Holy Spirit. The man who had stolen from the market and was, was fleeing towards the, the temple of Artemis and the tree of asylum he got there and he was given reprieve for a moment, even in that imagined scene. Many cultures across the world have known hints of the great story. But the Temple of Artemis took 129 years to build and it was destroyed in one night by a fire. No one goes there now for mercy. Whatever fragment they had, it is lost. But there is a tree where love itself actually hung and breathed its last to offer us this first and true love. It is the kindness of Jesus that leads us to repentance, 
that makes lasting change possible. Change motivated by love, not by fear, not by pride, but by love. And perhaps it was this tree in Artemis' temple that prompted the Spirit to remind the church of its true inheritance, its true reward. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Pretty specific promise of reward for the church. So let's run to the tree. As the Spirit stirs us with conviction that we have forsaken our first love, let us run to the cross to recover it. As the Spirit invites us uh, to to leave the the image management, uh, the so-called sophistication of our time for childlike wonder, great expectation and joy, let us run to Jesus. Let us embrace Christ. If we have settled for a small, well-worn path of selfishness, let us come out into the wide space of our first love. Maybe you got to high-five a tree this week. What would it take to call your heart to life? We're not blindly trying to stir a feeling, but we we are walking in actions towards Jesus and towards our neighbor. Remember and repent, church. Come back to your first love. Let us return today. Heavenly Father, move by your Spirit. God, may we we come and run to you this morning. May we, we see that you're running back to us to embrace us, to hold us, put a ring on our finger, a robe around us to say, welcome home. God, may you you show us the ways in each of our lives we can cultivate our first love for you, God, and then outflow into love for our neighbors. God, may we not just be the project manager of our lives, but may there be some level of of, of a sacred romance that we experience in relationship to you and in love to one another. Maybe that feels so bizarre for for some of us even to think about, but that, that, that you delight in us. May we sense it and learn to delight in you. Come, Holy Spirit. Lead us to remember, to repent, to return, to hold on to this promise that we can eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, that we can get a taste of it now and a promise of that future forever. In Jesus' name, amen.